another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The time that I'm actually recording this podcast is Monday, February 23rd. You'll be listening to it, if you listen to it when published, on Tuesday, February 24th. That's because I did the uh, listener call-in show for Monday, and I'm trying to get ahead this week to make sure that there's a show every day, because this is going to be a really wild week for me at work, and I'm not going to have time to even do the real quick little edit upload thing that I usually do this week uh, once I'm in the office. So because of that... um, I'm recording this a day in advance. That's going to have maybe a little bit of impact on the show because I'm going to talk about where the Dow Jones is before the markets opened Monday morning. So if you go check the number and it doesn't seem to line up, that's going to be why. But don't worry. Today's show is not going to be all about the economy. I'm going to talk about a bunch of things today, Uh, just kind of a mosh-posh of uh, different things that are going on, thrown together, and things that we can look at. and some things that maybe should be discussed and, 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 and looked at uh, deeper and further. Um, the first thing I want to talk about today is actually an episode of uh, Glenn Beck that I caught about the last 40 minutes of that, that aired on Friday. Um, and I'm talking about the Glenn Beck TV show, not the uh, Glenn Beck radio show. Glenn did a whole show that was geared around the collapse of America. One of the authors uh, that he had in wrote a book that basically was saying that the collapse would happen around 2014. Now, you know how I feel about people who put dates on things like this because you look like a fool when 2015 comes and it ain't happened yet. But um, I don't know. It's uh, I look at that one and I almost go, we could have all of these things occur before 2014. So maybe this is a place where uh, a title on a book is uh, a good idea. Who knows? We'll find out as, as times go forward. But as he interviewed the guy, he talked about these things as probable possibilities. In other words, here's all the bad things that could happen, and I'm telling you that some of them definitely are going to happen them happen before 2014. All of them could happen, and I really didn't get that much of it because he was toward the beginning. And uh, one of our listeners actually called the hotline, the uh, 866-65-THINK number, and left me a message while I was working. Hey, tell your people to get on and listen to this thing, and uh, you should listen to it too. So I went in, turned the uh, DBR on, and recorded it. Um, So I I didn't get a lot of that, but I did get to hear an awful lot from a second author. And, you know, stupid me, I didn't write down the guy's name. I even looked it up this morning and didn't write down his name. But the book is called The Survivor's Club. And he was saying there are five types of survivors. And I thought maybe we'd give a little bit of an overview of what that's about today and take a look at it and start to analyze for ourselves which one are you and which characteristics may be a good idea for you to build up and improve in your life. Because what he said is everybody is one of these five. And my view is good survivors are all of them. And... I guess that's, you know, maybe buried out the fact that I took a quiz and I found out that I'm a realist. And maybe as a realist I see it that way and maybe other people won't. But I'm going to kind of present it to you that way. And instead of saying I'm a fighter or I'm a realist or I'm a believer or I'm a connector or I'm a thinker, and those are the five things, and don't worry if you want to write them down, I'm going to give them to you again. Instead of saying I'm one of these, it should really be, let's look at this, 
and say, okay, all of these are characteristics of people who made it through. That means they all have value. How can I encourage all five of these characteristics in myself and in my family? And if, I, if you're into like, you know, building a group of survivalists around you or a community around you, how can I instill all of these into our community? So I thought that would be a good thing to look at today. And I'm going to have to do it with you know, kind of a, uh, a disclaimer. Or what I have to tell you is I've not read the book. So I could get some things wrong. In fact, I'm not really sure exactly what a connector is. Um, I believe that would be connecting people and connecting help to people that need it. I'm not sure. I know what a realist is because I took a quiz and I found out that I'm a realist. And there's a what survivor type are you quiz on the Glenn Beck uh, website. And what's interesting is when I was trying to get a little bit of information about this to uh, discuss it with you today, I typed in the Survivors Club, and I can remember fighter, realist, believer. So I typed in those three types, figuring it would help me find the other two types. And uh, the first result on Google was survivalpodcast.com. And I went, wait a minute, I didn't do a show on this yet. It turns out that Swanson, in our forum, as always, is one step ahead of me and already has a forum thread about this episode of Glenn Beck and a link where you can go take the survival quiz. So I went and took the quiz and determined what type of survivalist am I. And I don't think anybody that listens to this show would be surprised to realize that my result was a realist. And they, what, they, what the result of the quiz said is that means that what I do is I look at the situation, realize exactly what has to be done, whether it's, whether it's uh, comfortable or uncomfortable, and then do what needs to be done. And that's what a realist is. And I thought, well, sounds to me like this quiz is at least a little bit accurate. So maybe some more of you out there can take it and tell me how you feel about your results. I'll put a link to the thread that Swanson started about this, and we can discuss it there. Or go ahead and comment in the show notes and say, you know, it said I'm a connector, and here's why I believe it's right or here's why I believe it's wrong. be interesting to kind of pick this thing apart. But let's just go through them real briefly here and uh, see how maybe we, instead of saying I'm one or the other, how we could maybe add these things and make them where if you're going to be telling me that these five traits are each traits of people that made it through tough situations, and this book is about people that went through everything from uh, fatal cancer diagnosis, financial collapses, um, and things like natural disasters. And he just found everybody that's ever been in a place where you'd go, I don't think they're going to make it, and they did. And then he found these five characteristics. Well, to me, again, if you're going to build somebody into a real strong survivalist, having at least some of each of these is probably a good idea. So let's go through and discuss them. And they're in no particular order. I just wrote them down as I found them online uh, when I found the list of them. I didn't want to leave any out. And the first one on the list is a fighter. And I remember the author telling Glenn, that's what you are. You're a fighter. You're out here every day talking about what can be done about these things. And I thought, well, that must mean I'm a fighter, too, because I'm doing the same thing. And I, I bet you, I bet you, and I don't know if Glenn actually took the quiz or not, but I bet you if Glenn took the quiz, Glenn Beck is also a realist. He's not a fighter, at least the way the quiz was slanted, because Glenn always wants to bring things back into a level of, well, what can we actually do about it proactively? How can we make a difference? 
Let's not get too hasty. Let's remember that the government needs to follow the Constitution, but so do the people. And that, you know, getting into an aggressive confrontation is a last resort, not a first response. So, to me, a fighter, though, is more than just that. It's like some of the questions on the quiz, I'm sure, angled me toward fighter, which one of them was, you hear a sound at night in your home. What's the first thing you do? And one of the options was get a weapon. Well, I mean, that's the first thing. I hear a sound in the middle of the night in my house that I know is not supposed to be there. The first thing I'm doing is I'm coming off the bed, and I'm retrieving my 45 and my tactical light, and I'm going to make sure if I have to use my gun that I know what I'm using it on. But the first thing I'm going to do is put a weapon in my hand because I don't know what the threat is, and I know I need to defend against it. Now, see, to me, that that's a fighting response, but on the other side, it's also a realist response. And maybe it's the reason my result came out that way. Because what is my other option there? Call 911? I'll call 911. If I if I think the threat, you know, I don't think it's just a sound. I really think somebody's there. Yeah, after I get my gun. Because while I'm on the phone, you might come up and shoot me or hurt my wife or my son or, or, or something else. So it's the realist in me that says, in this instance, my first response is, is to get in a position where I'm able to fight. Another option was to go see what the noise is. I'll go see what the noise is. But not without a weapon. Because now I'm walking through my own dark home. And somebody's on a heightened sense of awareness because they're breaking into it, and I'm undefended. So as I look at fight, I have to really wonder how many places fight just naturally overlaps with things like being a connector, being a believer, being a thinker. You know, and I like to think of myself as a thinker as well, and hopefully you would too. And I think there's a there's a great deal of value that goes with being a fighter. And I think that what's one of the things that men really need to think about, because men want to be the most aggressive personality type. Maybe it's not always good to be a fighter, though. Sometimes you have to think about what you're doing before you wage the fight. So it, it's not necessarily that you shouldn't fight, but how do you position yourself so that you're going to make sure that not only do you, do you uh, wage the fight, but you win the fight. The next one was realist. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I so identify with it, and I think I really just covered it. Um, so, again, it's like, this is going to be a book that I'm going to have to read, but if anybody out there has actually read this book, they could create a little cliff note for me and send me each personality type with a you know a half a paragraph description on what each one is. That might be really cool because I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to actually read this daggone book. But to me, a realist means exactly what I said earlier. I'm going to evaluate the situation, determine what needs to be done, and do it. And, and that, to me, is the most logical way to get through the situation as a survivalist in any situation whatsoever. I'll talk about how thinker ties into that in a minute. The next one is the believer. And I see a great deal of value in faith. Now, I'm not your typical church-going, every-Sunday Christian. I don't think anybody that's listened to this show would... Um, would expect that I was, based on just some of the things that I say and some of the things that I do and some of my personal beliefs. But I absolutely believe that there's a higher power, that there's a God that watches over all of humanity, that there's a collective wisdom available to all of us through things like meditation and prayer. And 
that faith is what makes it worth doing the hard things. It makes it worth doing this show every day. Doing this show today, well, my voice is about shock because i got these damn allergies back again, and I can't get a hold of any reasonable, uh, you know, actual ActiFed because they took it off the market because people were making methamphetamine out of it, and I'm the one that actually suffers because now we get our meth from Mexico. Wow, we went off on a tangent there, but that's reality. So I'm willing to deal with this this voice, and hopefully you are too, because I have faith that what I'm doing matters. But the quiz was like, you are stuck in you know a situation where everybody might die. You know, and I won't give away the actual questions, but what do you do? And, you know, plan for escape, figure out how to fight your way out of it, see if you can figure out a way to make communication possible, or pray to God. Now, I might pray, but it's not going to be my first response to that situation. My first response is going to be, what do I do? to put myself in the most beneficial position to help myself and those that are here with me. And prayer is fine. And prayer and faith is what drives that intention. But to me, if you're going to sit around and just pray whenever something goes wrong, you know, there's there's an old story about the guy that's stuck up on top of a house and the floodwaters are rising and a boat comes by. And they say, get in the boat. And the guy says, no, God will provide for me. And they say, fine. You know, and then a bigger boat comes by and they say, get in the boat for me. He says, no thanks, God will provide. And and finally, the floodwaters raise up over and the guy drowns and he ends up in in heaven with God. He says, God, I had faith in you. Why didn't you help me? And God said, I sent you two boats. And I think there's some of that when you talk about being a believer and, you know, your 401k drops. Well, do you do something about it or do you sit around and pray to God and believe that it will be okay? So I think believer is one of those things that no matter how strong your faith is, you better temper it with action around the belief. And I think that most people do that. And I don't know how many people would come up with believer as an answer to this quiz that would be really effective survivors unless you read the questions this way. What is the first thing that you will do? And what you're thinking to yourself is, well, I'd probably grab a gun when I hear somebody in my house. But at the same time, I'm saying a prayer. And I guess the prayer comes first. And I guess there are people that have faith like that. And I think if you have that kind of faith, it's a very powerful type of faith. The next one is the connector. I guess the connector to me is the person that in the situation with the burglar dials 911. And I could be completely wrong. This is the one that I'm really not sure about. Okay, so, but I mean, that's just how this seems to me. That there's a problem there's a solution, and my job is to connect the two of them together. Now, like I said, I'll dial 911 after I retrieve my weapon, and after I actually, I'm going to make sure that there is some type of a threat. I'm not going to dial 911 because I heard a bump, because I know that it could be the cat or the dog or something fell against the house, and there could be no imminent threat. I'm not going to call for police unless I'm completely convinced that there actually is a threat, but I'll have the phone, too, and uh, I'll dial 911. One, I'll make that connection, but I don't know. I'm probably going to be taking the fight response, the believer response, the realist response, the thinker response, all before I take the connector response in that particular situation. Now, the thinker is another one that perplexes me because to me, the thinker is a lot like the realist. And it's going to be interesting once I get the author's view on these five characteristics, how they differ from my own, just by hearing him interviewed for five minutes and just by hearing 
what those five characteristics are. But to me, the thinker and the realist have to be very close to each other. Because the thinker is going to sit down and say, how do I get myself through this? How do I get somebody else through this? On the quiz, another one of the questions was, a good friend calls you and says that you have cancer, or that they have cancer, and they're diagnosed possibly terminal. What is the first thing you would do? The answer I picked was read up on everything I could find about the type of cancer that they had. And that's because I want to know, is there any way that I can help? Now, to me, that's not being a connector. That's not even being a realist. And I think the realist answer there had something to do with accept that that's the way that it is and move on with life. And that's the part where I diverge from that and I say, well, how can I help? How can I help this person survive this ordeal? They may have been told by a doctor there's no hope. They may have an incompetent doctor, a wrong doctor. I believe there's a lot of those out there. They may be in, you know, the first stages they talk about when you're told you're going to die. The first, you know, I think is is shock and then anger. And they may be somewhere in, in that mode. They're not thinking yet, right, and denial. And denial doesn't always work, because denial is not, no, I can find a way around this. A lot of times for people, denial is, it won't matter, it won't, it's okay, I'm going to be fine. Something will, some, you know, go into the believer mode, something will take care of me. And my thought is, the first thing you do is you determine, is there anything out there that's new, that's evolving, or that's been done in the past that's helped people like this? And you make them aware of it. And then you're there as a friend. And if they choose not to avail themselves as to what you make available to them, then you stand by them and you be, your friend, you be their friend. Because you can't tell people this is what you have to do with your life. It's their life. They have to make that decision. Uh, so to me, that's still being a realist, but I'm trying to articulate out from just this list what maybe makes the difference where I guess maybe a realist is more of uh, you look at it with a, with a hard glaze of this is the way that it is. So, um, you know, I think this is interesting. I'd like to hear from anybody that's read this book. And again, if somebody could cliff note it for me, save me some time, it's something I'd like to revisit. So again, the book is called The Survivor's Club. I'm going to definitely try to read this book. I think it's a good book for all of us in this community to read. And uh, I'll try to do another segment on it or maybe an entire show when I actually have the book read or at least have some good cliff notes put together. Let's move on to something else. And again, I want to apologize to you folks for my voice today, but I'm not going to let this show slide uh, just because I'm hoarse. And I'm going to keep working hard to make it as good for you as I can and uh, to be as varied as I can with Tom to keep it interesting. So let's go to something totally different than the Survivor's Club. Let's go back. I told you uh, a few months ago about what I call the great mutual fund lie. The mutual fund scam where people say that the you know, stock market always returns uh, a positive return on 10 years. And I showed you several months ago how 10 years ago and today, at least that two months ago, were even with each other. That in 10 years you didn't make any, you didn't lose any, you just stayed put. And uh, that's losing. Being even money from 10 years ago is losing. First because... You probably invested all during that time because they tell you dollar cost average, blah, 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 keep throwing money in. So you lost money on the investments after that 10-year period. But even if you just took $100,000, put it into a good indexed fund or a good combination of indexed funds and waited 10 years and ended up flat, 
you've lost. Well, now you've broken even or lost over a 12-year period. Uh, this is what I said about doing the show a day in advance. The Dow was somewhere in 7,500 range, 7,535, I think. And the last time I could find it at that range, and again, this is 2000, February 2009, was May of 1997. Now, I learned new math, and I could be wrong because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings with an arithmetic problem anymore. But as far as I see that, 97 to 2009, that's almost 12 years. So there's almost a 12-year period now, and I'm I'm beginning to think that I called the bottom of this market wrong, and we're not done yet. And we could see the Dow down to 7,000 or lower before we actually bottom out. And uh, you have to do whatever you want to with that information. I'm not a financial advisor, but the Dow is very forward-looking. And stock markets as a whole, the S&P 500, uh, the NASDAQ, all of these things are very forward-looking. And what that means is they, they don't price them based on today's value. They price them on tomorrow's value. So a lot of the, the downturn had already been priced into the market, yet it continues to tumble, and it's things like the stimulus package that, that are spending money on things that are not going to directly influence the economy that are driving down investor confidence. And you can argue to your blue in the face with me and tell me why we need the stimulus bill and why Barack Obama is the right guy to serve you Kool-Aid, but you're not going to argue with the realist that is an analysis, an, an analyst that sits in anal- analyze is the economy every day for a living and determines how much a stock is worth and how much money he's willing to pay for a share of it. That guy historically has done a very good job of pricing the market. That's why he has his job. He's not the guy that manages your mutual funds, by the way. He's the guy that works for private investors and does the investments that are not available to you, and they're the ones that have the greatest impact and influence on the market as a whole. And you don't need to understand all that. Just understand this. The most informed people are doing the investing for the wealthiest people, and they're doing it based on the best interests of that wealthy individual, not you or me, and not the market as a whole. So if they see the market in decline in the future, they're going to take appropriate action. That creates the reality of the market going down. These large sums of money and where they go, everybody else follows them. And when you start following the money, you write your own results to a degree. Now, once companies come in and start producing big earnings, that's going to you know drive the market up. But that same economist that works for those wealthy people that took him out of the market or took him into short positions or took him into hedge funds or whatever it was he did, it's going to go back and invest at that point. That starts to drive the market up. So these people know what's going on. And what they're saying right now is all of this stuff smells bad news for the immediate future of our economy. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what it means when you see this market continuing to tumble. Now, I think the market will go up today. That's Monday, not Tuesday when you're listening to this show. You can go look and see if it happened. Futures were up about 58 points. Unless something bad comes out on Monday today, uh, you should be able to look back to tomorrow and see a little tiny uptick in the market. I'm talking 50 to 150 points. And that's just based on futures trading. And like I said, that could change. And it's also 
wasn't based on an all-time low in recent history. That every time the market bottoms, a lot of the you know the quick day trader type people say, okay, well we can come in, grab some shares, make a few bucks, dump them tomorrow. So you might see everything that's gained on Monday go back on Tuesday or even more. Again, you have to make your own decisions. But I just want to point this out: this lie when all these financial advisors keep telling you historically over a 10-year period, we'll ask them about this 10 years, and now ask them about this 12 years when you're just sitting in a mutual fund. And I want to say this one more time before I go off the mutual funds in the stock market, because you've got to understand this, or you will never take control of your own investments in your own situation and find the kind of financial advisor you really need. Your mutual fund manager can't do what he thinks is best. He's not allowed to do what he thinks is best. He's put around a set of parameters, and they might be that 98% of the cash in the fund will be invested in stocks that meet a certain criteria at all times. So when they saw the market crash coming, and you're wondering, why did my mutual fund manager sell off a lot of this stock before it had a time to, a chance to drop? Because he wasn't allowed to. He had to sit there and take it like a freight train in the face. When you buy a mid-cap stock fund, your money has to stay in the mid-cap market. It cannot come out. So if you want to find good funds, then you need to look for funds that are not just actively managed. That just means they move them around in different stocks. When the whole sector's tanking, all the stocks are going to tank. Right? So what you want is a fund where the, the owner has the, the manager has the freedom to move into cash assets when they see something like this happening. And they're a lot harder to find funds like that because they're riskier in the mind of the government who regulates them. Because the government's goal is not to protect your investments in mutual funds. The government's goal with mutual funds and 401ks and IRAs and separate retirement, folks, you've got to understand this, is to keep money in the stock market. That is the only goal they really have. And to understand what I mean by that, you have to move into a world where you almost question yourself, am I going into you know, the tinfoil hat brigade? And you're not. If you look at this logically, rationally, you'll understand how this works. The government wants business to thrive because the business of the, the United States of America is their tax base. More than the rich, more than the middle class. They make most of their money taxing business. They want business to employ people. And here's what I mean by that. You go, well, wait a minute. I pay a lot of taxes. If you make 50, 60, 70,000 a year, you pay a hefty tax bill. Without a business to employ you, you wouldn't pay that tax bill either. So what drives the economy is large business supported by medium-sized businesses, which are then supported by small businesses. That's how our economy was set up, and that's how our economy runs. So what they want to do is they want to make sure that there's lots of capital available for large corporations to stay in business, to stay innovative, to stay operational. There is some nobleness in this goal, but it ends up like everything the government does, everything the government does, whether the goal is noble or malicious, always ends up creating more bad than good. Mutual funds and the way they're regulated are a perfect example of that. So the goal is to keep money in the market. So you set rules. You can't trade funds as easily as stocks. There's penalties to sell a fund of a certain class early, even though it's not a bond. Even though, right? And there's certain things that a fund manager can never do, like take 25% of the assets of the fund and go to cash, or 50% of the assets and go to cash. And if you were smart, 
If you were a smart fund manager taking care of everybody, you know what you would have done in July? You would have put about 80% of the assets in the cash and 20% in the gold, and you would have waited until now, and you would have went buying like crazy right now. And if the market drops another 1,000 points, all the people in your fund would still be happy with you because you saved them 80%, you only lost them 10, and you positioned them for the rebound. Now, I don't know if the rebound's coming or not at this point. We could be uh, in a terminal velocity downward spiral if we don't get this right and come back out of it. But if you're going to be a fund manager, if you're going to believe in managing stocks, that's the way you would think. And the people that were private investors, that's what they did. They went to cash and gold. And a lot of them are buying the hell out of individual cherry pick stocks right now. And you think of a guy managing a mutual fund doing it that way. It's not that way. It's designed to keep a lot of money diversified across a lot of stocks to create support for the bottom of the market. This does two things. It spurs the economy, in good times anyway. It also reduces how far the economy can fall in bad times. And then the third thing that it does is it creates a safety net for all the guys out there bilking the system. And that's the government and its buddies, folks. It's not Bush and his buddies with Halliburton. We're worried about Halliburton. Halliburton getting an oil contract? Do you know how much money was created out of thin air in the derivatives market while people on the far left bitched and bitched and bitched about Bush and his oil buddies? And you're talking about a couple hundred billion dollars? I'm talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars of counterfeit money. That's that's what derivatives are. You can listen to the derivatives show to learn that. And that's what you've got to understand, that the entire concept of a mutual fund started out as a good idea. Let the little man be able to invest like a big man with a nice portfolio of stocks. The government grabbed it, seized it, created investment vehicles built around it, and turned it as a way to keep massive trillions of dollars in the market held captive with a message of fear of loss. If you we get out now, you might lose the upturn. All right, so let's move off mutual funds. I just want you to really think that way and think about how if you had thought that way back in January of 2008, how much better off you would be today. And instead of you know arguing hypotheticals, argue the real. If you thought that way in January, how much better would you be today? And if you have any investments whatsoever, you either already thought that way and you're saying I'd be the same, or you would have to admit that you'd be better off. So let's look at something else that our clouds and the government are doing that should be just, I mean, everybody out there that has a mortgage on their home, even if you're you're good to go and you don't need any bailout money, if you have houses in your neighborhood that are in default and it's driving down the prices of your neighborhood, You've been sold that bailing out the homeowners with this new $275 billion Obama package um, is a good thing because it will protect housing values in your neighborhood. Even, you know, don't, add, you know, hey, you're responsible. Don't us to bail you out. We're going to bail out the irresponsible. But for Mr. Responsible, that's the message. Hey, look, if we don't bail out the people in your neighborhood, it drives the price of all the property down in your neighborhood. Now you, you're stuck in your home because you're upside down on your mortgage through no fault of your own. So we have to bail out the irresponsible to protect you. We're sorry, but that's what we have to do. And that's a pretty good logical argument. Let me ask you a question, though. Do you live in Arizona, California, Nevada, Michigan, or Florida? Again, do you live in Arizona, California, Nevada, Michigan, or Florida? And if your answer is no... They get ready to be pissed off. 95%, I believe, is the number I heard this morning on Fox News. But the lion's share, anyway, of this money is going to those five states. 
almost all the money is going to California, Florida, Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona. And it doesn't take a genius to go, well, the money in Florida is probably going to the Miami-Dade County area for condo people that are idiots. The Nevada money is obviously going to the areas around Las Vegas, California, L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, Michigan, Detroit. And Michigan, their real estate market sucked when times were good. Arizona, Flagstaff, not Flagstaff, I'm sorry, uh, Phoenix, uh, Prescott, and I'm trying to think there's a, a place north of Phoenix, it's like a suburb, real, real ritzy, and I can't believe I can't remember the name of it right now, uh, but you know, that area there where people speculated on the market, so it's probably not even just these five states, this money's probably going to, on average, a dozen cities and their surrounding metro areas in America, so the people that are defaulting on their mortgage in my neighborhood, and most of those people weren't greedy investors that bought really expensive homes that they couldn't afford. They bought just a little more than they really could afford. And they're driving down my property prices, and they get nothing. Now, look, I don't want anybody to get anything. I want the system to work. I think if we get out of the way government let private industry take care of it, that eventually somebody would come in and buy these bad assets, uh, come in and take over the homes, spur a rental market by people that can't buy anymore, put people into those homes as tenants, begin to build equity, and we could correct this market in less than two years. And I believe if nobody did anything, we would already be well into a recovery. But, but, if you're going to spend it anyway, and you're going to tell me and the American people that the reason that responsible people aren't getting any money is because you don't have any for us, but you're still helping us because you're preventing the, the value of my property from going down, and then you put 90% or more of the money into five states in which I don't live, and you took my tax money to do it, and you borrowed money against my kids' future tax money to, do, to build it, to do it, and you're lying to me yet again, I'm pissed off. And again, folks, you need to start putting down these things in what I call I am pissed off journal. And I think, I've told you this before, there's only so many things that the American people can hold in their attention at one time. And they use this against us, and they play this against us, and they do things like show us octuplet lady yet again. Octuplet lady, and now they have octuplet man. The guy that is the sire of the children. Oh, do we not have better things to worry about than freaking octuplet lady and octuplet man? So journal these things so that when you start, and it's not just so you can be negative. I want you so you don't believe bullshit, people. I want you, the next time you hear something, to open up a page in your journal of all the things the government's done wrong and lied to you about and all the things that you've been misled about, and I want you to go through them, and I want you to go, are there any parallels here? Are they being truthful with me now? And when they are, fine. But when they're not, be informed and learn the difference between the two. It's so important that you don't be misled by your government. You don't be led into artificial class warfare. You don't accept that, oh, well, I'm not happy with this program, but at least it's going to help my neighborhood from going into decay. When if you don't live in one of 12 cities, basically, it's not going to do a damn thing for you. And we've done it all for nothing as far as you're concerned. And I think that at least some of our governors are figuring that out. 
Because there's a few governors around the country that are actually saying we're not going to take part of the stimulus funds. Let me tell you two reasons. In Mississippi, I saw their governor on, and I thought, this guy is pretty smart. Maybe he should be running for president. He said, we're not taking it because they're going to put us in a situation where I'm going to have no choice in a couple of years but to raise taxes in my state on my people. And I finally balanced our budget. I did it by raising taxes. I didn't want to. I had to. And I'm looking for ways to cut spending now. And as I cut spending, I'm going to give the people the money back in, in reducing the tax hikes that we had to do to balance the budget. Our problem in Mississippi isn't that we get too much money in. It's that we have too much money going out. I'm on the road to correcting that. And I don't want the federal government to come in and say, now that you've taken this money, you have to get off of that road, which is exactly what they're going to make me do. Here's one of, His big thing was, in Mississippi, if you're on unemployment, and you get an offer for full-time employment somewhere, you have to take the job. You take the job, and if you want a better job, you keep looking, but you get off unemployment, you stop drawing state funds, you get your butt to work, and you start becoming another productive member of society. What the stimulus package does if it comes into Mississippi is it requires them to remove that work requirement so that you can turn down full-time employment and continue to draw your unemployment. And the Mississippi people and the Mississippi governor obviously do not want that. What they're saying is, since that would put people on unemployment longer, it will increase our spending. And because it increases our spending, once this money you're giving us runs out, I have to keep the program going because you're making me. And my only source of revenue is the people of my state, and I'm safeguarding their interest. Two years into the future, we're not taking your lollipop today. And you know what? Salute of the week to the governor of Missouri, uh, Mississippi for doing that. Don't even know your name, sir, but salute of the week to you, uh, and I'm going to start doing that again, somebody that gets a salute of the week, and just because I happen to see you, I'm sure there's other people that deserve it, but I saw you, I heard what you had to say, and, and God bless you for looking out for the people of your state, and uh, keep fighting a good fight. Another reason some other governors are looking at this and going, we don't want it, is it takes away, if your state takes the money unconditionally, welfare reform. See, Bill Clinton wasn't as bad a guy as a lot of us seem to remember him as. One of the good things that Bill Clinton did was bring in welfare reform, and it was kind of forced on him a little bit by the Republican majority that took over the Congress and the Senate. But together, they came to a compromise, and they said, you know what, if you're on welfare, and you're physically able to work, you've got about two years to figure out how to get some income or you lose your welfare. And you need to get to work and stop living on the dole. And that has improved the lives of people and the lives of communities across America. And you've got to give a guy credit when he does something right. And Bill Clinton did a lot of things wrong, including lying to our face on TV. But that was right. And that was from a liberal Democrat. Now, Barack Obama wants to step in and change this. Well, you know, at the helm, really, here is Nancy Pelosi, who put this bill together with people like Harry Reid. And, you know, this is not the Democrats are bad here, folks. This is a decision to reverse a successful program. One of the very few successful programs involving welfare ever, which was simply saying, if you can work, you need to work, which makes sense to anybody paying taxes. Let's go to these people on welfare thinking, my money. 
And reversing that makes no sense at all. That's part of this bailout bill. And you should call your state governor, inform him of that, and let his office know that you don't want that done. And maybe your state reps and your state senators. Like I said, you should be making one call a week to your clouds. And to your state clouds, maybe this is the call that you should be making. Okay, folks, well, that's it That's it for today's show. Uh, I've got to cut this one off. My voice is almost completely gone. I'm going to spend the rest of the day drinking coffee and tea and uh, lubricating my throat and seeing if I can get another show out. That'll give me a day off now, and I'll be able to do a show Wednesday. I do want to throw out once again an invitation. I have started up something called a Supporting Members Brigade, and it's $5 a month if you want to support the show. It does not, in other words, I'm not selling the show is what I want to say. You are going to be able to continue to listen to the show as always, whether you do this or not. This is just if you want to support the show. I've created a private members area. There's nothing in there right now. There's nothing there right now except archives of the first 100 shows, episodes 1 through 100. You can download loaded nine step files. I'm going to be doing some other things. I'm going to be doing some video and things like that and some things that are just for premium members. The other thing is there's a wall of the foundational members on the membership site. You can't link to it. You have to request this right now because it's in beta. But the first 100 members get listed on that on that wall and they get to sponsor any website of their choosing. If it's your own site, fine. If it's Boy Scouts of America or Red Cross or just a site you'd like to support, fine. And you go down listed as one of those 100 members of the supporting members brigade, the foundational members that help me get it off the ground. Again, it's $5 a month. Send me an email, Jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com and request access to the program if you want to be part of it. And it's like $5 a month or $50 a year. It's up to you how you want to pay. And there's several options. You can use your PayPal account or you can use your credit card. I'll send you an email with instructions to sign up if you request it. Again, this is only for people that want to support the show. It is not selling access to the show. I will never charge you to listen to the show or be a member of our forum or be a member of our blog. Uh, so when I worked out the math, is it comes out to about 25 cents an episode. And if you feel you get 25 cents an episode in value, consider supporting the show. And if you don't, um, you know, maybe if you don't, some financial thing, you don't have the money, that's fine. But if you have the money and you don't want to support the show and it's not worth a quarter of the show, is it worth 40 minutes of your time, I guess is what I would ask. So my goal with this program, once again, is to get this show to a point where it's so self-sustaining that I can put four to five hours of research and development into it a day, give you better resources, better links, uh, better commentary, more, you know, more researched, well-thought-out presentations. The show will remain between 30 to 60 minutes a day, uh, but it's how much time I'll spend doing it. So again, folks, uh, I do appreciate those of you who have supported the program already. Uh, I appreciate all the support you guys have given. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep believing in yourself. Figure out whether you're a fighter, realist, believer, connector, or thinker today, and figure out how you can bring traits of those other characteristics in to your survival planning. And that'll go a long way for doing what we're trying to help you do here every day, and that is live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.